Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This week, we head to England and the University of Sheffield to speak with Dr. Milton Wainwright. He's an astrobiologist who's been doing quite a bit of interesting work in directed panspermia, which is the seeding of Earth. Now, we had Dr. Chandra Wickram say on the program about a year ago, who discussed his belief in this. Now, uh, Dr. Milton has taken it further and is reclassifying his work as neopanspermia, uh, which is the study of microbes in our stratosphere. In fact, the biological entities that he's discovered appear to be intelligently guided. And this is something that no one is, re- is reporting on simply because it is too fascinating. But this is the latest research. We're going to hear it from the man himself and this phenomenal discovery uh, that changes our understanding. In his own words, it is a paradigm-changing discovery, and uh, you'll hear why. Later, we'll hear from Melissa Tittle on her understanding of the Uh, consideration of foreign bodies in our atmosphere. And Adam Young presents streaming media for your consumption in the comfort of your home. All this and the news today on Earth Ancients. Saturday, November 3rd, 2018. This is Earth Ancients. I'm your host, Cliff Dunning. Hey, welcome. This is Cliff, your host. Welcome to my podcast. I hope you're doing well today. Hey, I want to welcome those of you who are new to the program, uh, who may be coming from X-File Network. Uh, and I understand that there's about there's about 140 different countries that that network feeds. Uh, if you're new to Earth Ancients, welcome. Hey, whenever you're interested in uh, a topic and you'd like to check in with me, send me an email. Send it to cliff at earthancients.com. And uh, I try to respond to people who send me emails and uh, it gives me an idea of what, what's going on with you, the listener. And if you're new to the program and you're not familiar, 
make sure you go back. We're we're about four years. We're actually going on our fifth year uh, broadcasting here uh, on the Blog Talk Radio Network. We're moving to Sprecher probably in the fall of this year. Uh, we'll have some feed on Blog Talk Radio Network, but we're moving to Sprecher simply because one of our networks is the iHeartRadio Network, and we get more coverage there. And you know, I want to keep growing our audience, so check us out uh, whenever you can. But uh, welcome. Uh, I hope you're enjoying the program. If, if you're listening, I know X File Network plays Earth Ancients 24 hours a day. <laughs> so I think uh, everybody around the world, depending on what your time zone is, you're going to hear the latest and the greatest coming from uh, our uh, our network and our program each week. So welcome. Welcome, welcome. Hey, we've begun November, which means in a couple of weeks I'll be heading south uh, for a tour of Maya cities in the Yucatan Peninsula of Mexico. And uh, this is my vacation. Uh, I'll leave for a few days ahead of time, stay for a few days after the tour to check out some new uh, locations, some new reports, some new ruins that have been uncovered. I recently found uh, a number of very interesting articles on early LIDAR uh, flyovers of uh, Chichen Itza, which we'll be visiting this year. Uh, Chichen Itza, also Koba. And so they found uh, just, uh, uh, I mentioned this last week, they found a new archway in Ushmul, which is on the Gulf side. And I want to see if I can see that. And then some other ruins. So... I I really enjoy Mexico. If I could, I if I could afford it, I'd have a a an apartment or something in um, Mareda because it's just very mellow. It's very uh, calming, and I I really I actually regenerate and <laughs> because it's slower. Uh, it's intense here in California, uh, like it is throughout the United States. We just live a very fast paced life and. Um, my friends who come up from South and Central America to visit, they're going, Jesus Christ. Most of them cannot believe the commute, the traffic we have here during commute hours is pretty insane. Not as bad as L.A., but uh, Los Angeles, but it's, 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 pretty, it's pretty intense here. So uh, the, the tour this year is the 17th to the 24th. I'm leaving on the 15th and going to do some early touring and check some places out. I'm really looking forward to it. And and, I, and I've mentioned also that uh, 20 plus years of, of research finally is, are culminating in a book called The Maya Controversy. Uh, a lot of it has to do with the new uh, satellite scans that have uh, shown that these Sakbis, these white Mayan roads, lead from a number of major cities, and they exit into the ocean. This was my first clue that the historians had the story of the Maya incorrect. My belief and the belief from uh, many of the elders, who, who uh, one of them was my mentor, a guy named Humbats Men, was that uh, generations, thousands of uh, years ago, uh, there was the beginning of the Maya uh, Estimates, conservative estimates are about 12,000 years ago. And you'll never hear a conservative or a orthodox uh, archaeologist mentioning this. But uh, the 
early people, the ones who established the cities of uh, the Maya in the Yucatan Peninsula, are pre-deluge, pre uh, this uh, this catastrophic event that affected all the Americas. Right now, we think it's an asteroid hit. Graham Hancock's new book basically, in some ways, confirms the fact that it may have been an asteroid hit that caused tremendous flooding, massive tsunamis, basically wiping 90% of the human population off the earth. And those individuals in the Yucatan Peninsula were the original Maya builders, the original people, multicultural people who built the pyramids and had the science, uh, were sky watchers. Uh, And I think they were actually quite a bit more, very advanced people. And uh, we don't hear a lot about the uh, the excuse me the sophisticated engineering that goes on in these pyramid buildings to build a pyramid is not a simple thing to do but we'll go on to that but anyhow the Yucatan Peninsula is a fascinating place I'm looking forward to this tour for those of you who will be joining me you're in for a real eye opener because uh, it is not only fun it's relaxing we swim in cenotes we have a great time and it is not something to be missed. If you can join me, we make it very, very inexpensive. If you can't do it this year, and it looks like we're pretty full, consider 2019. And that reminds me, uh, we have a tour coming up. I announced it a couple of weeks ago. Uh, It is Spirit Journey into the Orion Zone, May 17th and through the 20th, 2019. Uh, This is perfect timing. This is a, a springtime event. We arrive in Albuquerque, uh, we do a meet and greet, and then we head out to Chaco Canyon to visit a number of different ruins. We're going to go see the Salmon Ruins, the Aztec Ruins. We'll go to the Mesa Verde. This is ancient America up close and personal. Hey, and we're not going to have a bunch of interpreters. We're going to have Native Americans with us who will talk about their cultural history, their traditions the energetics of these of these ancient buildings, these cities that we'll uh, visit up close and personal. And uh, we'll have Native Americans with us uh, on, on each part of the tour. We're going to visit with petroglyphs. We're going to see these rock carvings. Chaco Canyon was, was, has been on my bucket list for years. This is a really, like I said, up close and personal tour. And we're doing a holiday special to kick it off. If you want to register, send me an email to cliff at earthancients.com. I'll send you the registration form. And to get 100 bucks off, uh, you, the first 10 people who registered at Early Bird Special, to get $100 off, a discount code is EarthAncients. Punch in EarthAncients when you register, get your deposit in, and you'll get 100 bucks off, which is kind of a nice way to start. There's only, I think Robert, the host, said there's about 15 spots at that rate, the ten, the $100 discount. So get it in. Send me an email, cliff at earthancients.com. And that is the first tour of the year, May 17th through the 20th, flying to Albuquerque. And we have a blast. It is, uh, it is it's a great time of year because it's not crazy hot. And it's beautiful there, too. So come on and join me for that tour. By the way, I am putting the final touches on the 2019 San Francisco 
New Living Expo. If you're in the Bay Area or if you're close to the Bay Area, consider this event. It's April 26th to the 28th. It's held at the San Mateo Event Center. And our guest lineup is, is amazing. We're going to have Graham Hancock's going to come out and introduce his new book and also give a special two-plus-hour presentation. Daryl Miklos from the Discovery Channel is going to show uh, the new dive that he will have completed in March. We had Daryl on the show. But we have a great lineup. We have uh, David uh, Lone Bear Simipass, who has the these amazing copper uh, scrolls that he will present. We have Freddie Silva, Andrew Collins, Ken Pertier, John Gray, jo- uh, James Redfield, John Van Aken, who we've had on the show. Remember, John is the uh, foremost authority on Edgar Casey. Former astronaut Ken Johnston, uh, Clifford Mahuti, Daniel Brinkley, and the list goes on. Uh, over 80 speakers speaking on two-plus uh, two days, Friday afternoon through Saturday and Sunday, and this is uh, a real good event. Uh, it's fairly inexpensive, uh, and I can get you a cheap hotel. <laughs> so if you want to come out, give me a call. Uh, actually, don't give me a call. Go to newlivingexpo.com and check out the uh, the lineup. But also, if you're interested in getting a discount ticket, uh, send me an email. Send it to cliff at earthancients.com, and I'll send you a coupon that gets you in uh, at a discount. I think it's a 30% discount. And... Uh, that is, if I may say so myself, it's going to be a great lineup of all things Earth Ancients. Yeah, it's very focused towards our show. Of course, I'm the program director, so I'm going to kind of tilt it that way. But uh, there's also uh, flavors like um, Ancient Alien. We got some UFO people on there. Uh, there's people talking about cannabis. This is my latest latest. Um, uh, uh, venture, by the way, I am writing a book on cannabis that I will start talking about. Uh, I have to wait a little bit until the editing's done before I can fully describe and disclose what this new book is about. But since California has legalized cannabis, uh, there is a, uh, not only a growing awareness here, but it uh, is showing to be hugely beneficial on a number of physiological levels uh, for us as humans, but also animals can really benefit from the uh, CBD uh, solutions uh, that can be taken either topically or orally. And it, it's bringing up some fascinating possibilities for wellness, for uh, sexuality. Uh, and for just uh, just for uh, getting on top of things, it's just amazing physically, mentally, and spiritually. It's fascinating. Uh, this uh, the properties within the compounds within uh, cannabis are just fascinating and uh, really beneficial. And it's been a shame that it's been outlawed for so long. I hope those of you listening in states that do not have it legal. Uh, can vote for it uh, in whatever elections that are coming up, this new midterm election, if you have it on the ballot, consider it, really consider it, because you know those who are abusing it, that's one side of it, but it's got huge wellness uh, potential. And uh, you just do a search for cannabis benefits for the physiology of humans, and you'll get 
hundreds of articles uh, that are uh, have been written about research on the benefits of cannabis uh, for for wellness. So, anyhow, if you if you have a chance to vote positively, to uh, vote it in to to be able to uh, consume cannabis, uh, do it because uh, it's very very powerful and it's a it's a plus. I'll talk more about my journey uh, and what I have uh, written. The book's almost done uh, and more details on that to come. Hey, if you're listening to us and you enjoy the show, please uh, uh, get on to iTunes and give us a rating. We need five-star ratings. I have some people. I I, uh, uh, made some uh, discouraging (laughs) remarks about our president Trump, and I had a wave of people that uh, basically weren't considering the show. They were considering my comments and decided that they didn't like me anymore. So that happens, and, and I accept it. Uh, I think that uh, things will be changing after the midterms. Yes, they will. They'll be changing, and it, it's coming to a close. I'm so sorry. It is coming. The, the Trump presidency is coming to a close, so. Anyhow, uh, if you get a chance, go to iTunes and say, hey, I like Earth Ancients. I like it. Here's five stars. And maybe write a couple of lines about what you think uh, so that other people get a sense of what to expect. And that's the big key. With thousands and thousands of shows out there, uh, a lot of people don't know what to expect. And they'd rather not bother if they're not familiar. So if they get a couple people going, hey, I like it because... That's all you need to do. Just tell people what you think about the show. And, uh, hey, I'd be appreciative. I really would. Uh, helps, uh, helps us grow. If you haven't thought about becoming a Patreon subscriber, please do. If you go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Earth Ancients, uh, you can subscribe for as little as five bucks a month. You get uh, you support the show, which is huge. And then you get a whole bunch of free stuff bunch of downloads, uh, unpublished interviews, and the new Cliff Notes. Now, I mentioned I was going to launch that uh, at the end of the month. I'm going to make a, uh, those of you who are subscribers, you'll hear from me in a video presentation that basically launches Cliff Notes. And Cliff Notes is a monthly uh, chance for us to all get together, sometimes with a special guest, and discuss the topics. Uh, I can uh, tell you what I've been doing what's coming up on the program, and actually show you some footage of some of the ruins I've visited, including uh, this tour that's coming up in a couple of weeks. I plan on filming a good portion of the uh, climbs on the pyramids, and you can see them also on the Facebook page, but I'm going to reserve some of the footage to those who are subscribers. So when you subscribe, you support earth ancients and uh, i would appreciate it so uh, again it's patreon p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash earth ancients yeah check out cliff notes <laughs> i'm digging it I'm, I'm really looking forward to doing that because i want to talk to you guys i want to hear what you're up to you know what you're thinking is cool so check it out i think you'll enjoy it all right so here's today's show i hope you enjoy it
Time to check in with Melissa Tittle. Melissa works for Gaia. Gaia is in in Denver. Hey, how you doing? Good. How are you? I'm good. We missed you last week, uh, but that's the way it works out. Everything's working good. This week, we have Milton Wainwright, Dr. Wainwright, uh, who is a microbiologist, but also uh, he is studying our stratosphere and has discovered some what he calls alien foreign bodies that are in our stratosphere. And if you look at some of the photos that he has published uh, uh, under uh, electron microscope, they th- these foreign microbes look really strange. She's got one that was uh, posted in 2015 of a metallic ball object. And inside it, it has this biological, um, he's kind of a slime <laughs> so, uh, anyhow, what do you think of that? It's kind of cool, I think, and the whole pans, yeah, the whole theory of um, foreign bodies in our in our atmosphere. Um, well, I mean, that's I feel like there's foreign bodies coming into our atmosphere all the time. I mean, I mean, that's even what they talk about in uh, at NASA and some other places where they're discovering, yeah. um, you know, even if, when there's a meteor that comes down in, into Earth, we have there's new DNA dispersed all over the place, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I, you know, I'm not the kind of person who jumps to the fact that, oh, this could be an alien invention of sorts. However, um, everything that is not earthbound is alien. The whole so, uh, panspermia idea, though, is that the planet has been seeded through uh-huh. intelligent design, like some extremely advanced culture is using Earth as kind of a big uh, lab, a Petri dish, if you want to call it that, and testing out different uh, animal types and plant fauna. And, I mean, it's it's just there's so many different types of species of animals that are are constantly in rotation. And I don't know. It's... When I first heard about it, I thought it was pretty brilliant myself. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I don't think it's far fetched. I mean, we humans do that, right? We genetically alter things uh, yeah. to test, uh, you know, to make a better hybrid. You know, it could right. be food, it could be animals, it could be organs in our body, right? So yeah. that's completely possible, and um, and and just very interesting to think about because. It, Everybody who has a theory about this, you know, how did life start on planet Earth? Mm-hmm. There's always that missing part, right? There's always that missing yeah. part of like, okay, so we went from here to here. How did that happen? And and every single theory, whether it's mainstream or it's alternative, comes up with that blank spot. And so then people come up with a theory in between. And, and this one isn't far-fetched from the other ones. Yeah, you know, it's, this is, seems like it's something that's uh, in Gaia's sweet spot, the whole idea that aliens uh, of extreme intelligence or extreme evolution are using planets like Earth for their experimentations. And it really goes to, uh, uh, when you look at these different hominins, these different um, uh, ape-like human beings and, and the various types there were, they all seem to show up and then they're gone. You know, and right. uh, we had Dr. Susan Martinez uh, in a segment last week, and she's saying, well, in her opinion, the Neanderthals and the other creatures were living on Earth at the same time that advanced humans were here, too. And I'm like, really? <laughs> so 
it's sky's the limit. You know what I mean? Yeah, that goes back to the theory of you know how ancient is the uh, the human DNA? Like we we yeah. only go back so far, but what if it was? What if there were advanced human beings living on the planet and then they were extinct, except for a couple? You know, like there's uh, yeah. there's so many changes that have happened to Earth, and again, there's the mainstream view and there's the alternative view. Uh, but in between all of those changes that happened on Earth for 500,000 years, there had to be life that was then destroyed and then created again. And then how did that happen? Yeah. I mean, you've interviewed Michael Tellinger uh, a number of times, and he, he he's of the whole belief uh, that Sitchin had, Zechariah Sitchin had, which is that we were basically created, uh, and we are, hybrids. You know, an ape man was... Uh, the DNA of an ape man was uh, uh, blended with a extraterrestrial, and here we are today. So, <laughs> and I know you've done programming on that. <laughs> of course, that's the missing part. It's like, okay, well, how did you know? There's a theory that okay, we we mated with with uh, some of these other species, yeah. uh, and that's how things happen. But but it still hasn't answered all of our questions. Yeah, um, there's just like there's such a blank area in this. You know, I I don't know if I believe in Stitchin's view of we're a slave race. I think that um, some other people that I interviewed had a really good take on it that we decided to be slaves to something bigger. Oh, I, that's interesting. That's a that was a human decision. Okay. Based on uh, this is someone else's research, but based on the. Um, the fact that we wanted to praise something that was bigger than us. We mm. wanted to be humbled. We wanted to uh, not take responsibility for maybe our actions or maybe how much power we have. Wow. So it wasn't that we were turned into slaves, but we created a slave mentality, which, of course, trickles down. So then you're like, okay, well, what if I had my own slaves? Then I would be like a god, right? So <laughs> then you go to ancient times and you see all that happening. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it, it was a, a human thought. It wasn't somebody that came down and said, you're going to be my slave and get me gold. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Uh, Wayne, Wainwright's uh, gotten a lot of flack for his uh, his research and what he's claiming are uh, foreign alien bodies uh, in our stratosphere. And so this is what we're going to find out about today. So, hey, always good to chat with you, Melissa on the high peaks of uh, Denver and uh, see all the alien material in the atmosphere. Yep. <laughs> it's me. <laughs> good talking with you and we will chat again real soon. Sounds good. Thank you. Of all the boys I've known and I've known some, So it's time to check in with Adam Young. Adam is our disseminator of information. Uh, he tries to give us as much streaming media as possible because, hey, we don't have time to read, right? We want we want to see it on our video. We want to see our on our phone, our TV, whatever. Uh, so as much as possible, it's streaming media. But hey, there's also some good reading material also uh, to, to check out. So, 
Hey, Adam, how you doing, man? Pretty good, Cliff. And actually, this week we have two articles to read. So, uh oh, damn it! Can I get it? But, can I get it in an audio, audible to listen to? <laughs> probably one of them has embedded video too. So, okay, so it's a mix. All right, all right. I, I'm just being lazy. Uh, I, I I do read. I have to read. We all have to read. But uh, streaming media is the future. So, hey, the first article is uh, on the Neanderthal children. Talk a little bit about that. And, and by the way, that's a CNN article, I guess. Cool. I know. I love these. I love the mainstream articles when they when yeah. they're interesting because but it, normally they are pretty uh, hypocritical. But in this yeah. case, they talk about 250,000 year old. At least that's what they dated it to teeth from Neanderthal children that exhibit signs of lead poisoning. So wow. I love I love this quote. Um I'm going to read it to you. Traditionally, people thought lead exposure occurred in populations only after industrialization. But these results show it happened prehistorically, before lead had been widely released into the environment, said Christine Austin, who's a, who's a faculty member at, um, at a hospital in New York. So I love the, I love the, I love the circular logic, right? Mm-hmm. Like, because we thought that previously only industrialization would lead to lead poisoning, and we found lead poisoning in the past, it means that there was no industrialization because we already knew it. You know, it's like, it's just such a very bizarre predicated, uh, like preconceived notions. And I, and I actually wrote a letter to the, to the, uh, to the author just saying, Hey, I'd love to talk to you about this. Very cool. Uh, (laughs) I, I want to supplement this. I just posted a new article on uh, a discovery made in uh, Northern Europe. They found the complete, uh, skeletal uh, i should say the spinal column and part of the rib cage of a full neanderthal male and apparently now they are saying that the neanderthals walked similar to homo sapiens sapiens who who we are today what are are really complex yeah so uh this is the latest this just came out today and you can read that article on the facebook page so that's the latest uh neanderthal is getting pretty close to us in terms of uh, physical uh, makeup, which is very interesting. Um, so that's something just to add. goes to show you how biased science is to say that we have to make these people look like they're hunched over and they're you know, less impressive than humans, than homo yeah. sapiens are. Yeah, with the, with the heavy foreheads and the small brains. But actually... The brains uh, are larger. Yeah, the brains are actually bigger. So very cool. Okay, so that's two to check out. Uh, oh, and by the way... Uh, these will be posted underneath the weekly banner uh, for our guest today, Dr. Milton Wainwright. So check that out on the Facebook page. Okay, the next article, world's largest ancient statue in uh, India. I- I'll let you mench- uh, uh, come up with the name. It's, it's, he believes it's built by machines. Yeah, I'm actually not going to try to pronounce that name right now either. <laughs> but it is from our friend Praveen. Praveen. Praveen, who was your guest a few weeks back or two months ago, he Praveen put Mohan. this. Yeah. Mohan, yeah, he put this out in February of this year, so it's it's a little dated, but um, I had not previously watched it until recently. It's talking about what he describes as the largest ancient, the largest uh, statue that's hewn from a single piece of yeah. rock of any type. So you look at it and it looks like it's white limestone or something, and he said no, it's actually white granite, yeah. and granite is is the red flag, right? Granted is one of the hardest substances in the world to cut. This thing um, is estimated to weigh over 1000 tons. That's over 2 million pounds. Yeah. It's on the top of a hill. 
And there is no white granite anywhere near it. There's no white granite on the hill or in the surrounding areas. So I don't think they've identified what quarry it's even come from yet. Yeah, I I saw this video and it's excellent. And they they estimate that it would. They thought in the beginning that elephants brought it up the mountain. But it it is so, and it's a beautifully carved statue, by the way, Adam. It's a, it's, it's really well designed and almost like it's polished. So this harkens, this, this reminds me of uh, what are are attributed to Ramses statues in Egypt. The ones that are, Chris Dunn talked about at length, they're perfectly symmetrical. And he described this statue as being the same. It also has high relief features on it, like a belt and some leaves in the, in the ruler's belt. Um, there's a lot of myth surrounding it. So the dating is all over the place. They're saying one, two, three thousand years. I would I would reckon it's much, much, much older. It may have been rehabbed a couple of times. It may have been yeah. rehabilitated. Taken, they, they could have given it a few facelifts or at least taken good care of it. But I, I think the granite seems to indicate to me that it's much older. You can't cut granite without essentially precision engineered tools. It's, but yeah. something like, of this size requires high technology. I, that's just a fact. Yeah, I don't even. I, I mean, I can't even listen to the the nonsense about pounding something with, yeah. with boulders or copper chisels or whatever the hell they're saying. I think that the nice thing is that in India they're a little bit more open minded. Yeah, and this thing is, uh, I think they conservatively estimate it's about a thousand years old. Well, that's again, that's bullshit. I mean, yeah. there's well, no I mean, way it's a thousand. That's years what the locals say, but you know, they 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 don't have records after that. You know, so who knows? Right, but I would I would highly recommend watching this video it's a little bit longer than his typical videos it's over 20 minutes uh he describes how it's it's basically impossible to do without without high technology right no i i really liked it i i just saw it about a week ago and i was impressed by the size of this uh statue and and just the precision the the quality of the of the carving i I think there's one more point i want to make and that's Mm -hmm. he mentions if you're going to carry a fully formed or carved statue any amount of any distance at all, there'd be marks in it, right? You'd, you'd basically would damage it to mm-hmm. some extent because of the weight. This doesn't have that in it, which seems to indicate it was carried up there and then carved or it was yeah. brought up there and then carved, yeah. which means the weight would probably be roughly two times that. So you're talking about 2000 tons. Oh, the plus. original before they ex- uh, carved the piece, the, the raw uh, stone itself. Right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That that, And you know, it's not, uh, a simple hill. It's actually pretty steep when you look up uh, at the top of the um, of the uh, sanctuary where it's located. It's not a. I mean, it would have took a, taken a, a significant effort to get that uh, stone up to the top of the mountain. It's pretty. It's pretty cool. For sure, I'd love to know where the quarry was. Maybe, maybe he's found it by now. Yeah, very cool. Okay, our final topic for the week is. The comet impact in the Indian Ocean may, that may have submerged uh, Dwarkia. Now we've talked about uh, uh, Dwarkia, uh, Dwarka a number of times, but uh, talk a little bit about this. This is an article uh, on the Graham Hancock website. Yeah, uh, this is a, a city. It's, it's a fabled ancient city in India. It's um, it's near the coast, and it's been written about in literature many times. So a lot of time, a lot of uh, stories or, or theories sort of focus on when the sea levels rose and cities were submerged. But we don't have historical records going back that far, really before like Sumeria. And um, 
that's a problem. However, I think India is ignored very often. And in India, we do have stories that are in the form of these like epics or epochs, whatever. Right. They, they tend to be regarded as mythological or almost religious in nature. But the reason I think the reason that is, is because they describe things like flying machines, like nuclear weapons and technology that we don't think they could have had. However, how could they have made all that stuff up and have it yeah. be and, and basically get the physics right? They talk yeah. about like acceleration and, and the effect of gravity on a flying machine. So I think they, ha- they, they knew a little bit too much if it was just made up. But I would say that the stories are probably conflated over time and, and they've probably diverged from being factual accounts to maybe more of like a historical fiction. Right. But anyway, this is so this city, as you mentioned, it's it it was real at one time um, and where it's rumored to have been. There are ancient ruins under the ocean. Uh, they found pottery shards in the vicinity. And, you know, how archaeologists love pottery shards, yeah. which those were dated to 1500 B.C. However, this story is mentioned in liter in literature that is pretty much widely accepted to have been written at least 3000 BC. Mm-hmm. And the city is already described there. And it's mentioned as being a city that was built in the distant past and then rebuilt by a king, not built, but rebuilt in the distant past. So it sounds like the city itself is much, much older. And um, the article, the article is actually not so much focused on the city, but to discuss what might have been perhaps a comet impact that could have caused this, which I think, think sort of falls in place with Graham Hancock's evolving thesis, uh, which, you know, not not him alone, but a lot of people seem to believe that a comet may have ended the last ice age and created this global catastrophic uh, super flooding. Basically, yeah, this this loosely coincides with that. It is kind of difficult because it's mentioned in passing in a number of Indian manuscripts. So it they didn't use it that calendar system we have today so there's there's no mention of oh this happened 9700 bc there's yeah. nothing like that but if you trace the if you trace it back and um just use kind of simple logic you can you can say this is probably before 5000 bc that's kind of as as good as you can get yeah but, and you, you don't hear a lot about this uh uh work yet from uh western archaeologists because it throws a wrench into their uh theory of, of evolution because these this is a very sophisticated city streets and well laid out uh, uh buildings and things like that it's not just thrown together like a, a nomad ca- nomad camp it seems to be yeah and it seems to have been built rebuilt and rebuilt a number of times which yeah. which also coincides with the you know the indian philosophy of of a, of a cycles of yuga yeah. cycles yeah. so they one of the stories sh- uh, says that after the city was rebuilt and right before it was destroyed by this super flooding. So if you want to accept that, you could maybe say it could be roughly 10,000 B.C. The people were warned in advance by two leaders who knew it was coming. They told everyone to put everything in their quote unquote car. Yeah, they did say car, uh, although that could have been a car, I guess cart, whoever, who knows. Um, <laughs> but it raises the <laughs> it raises the question, did they. If it was a comet, that 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 kind of explains how they might have known it was coming. They could have calculated its trajectory and triangulated it and said, we know it's going to hit. Maybe we're not sure where, but we live on the coast, so let's get yeah. the hell out of here. Yeah. That's a fascinating article, uh, and I haven't had a chance to read it, but uh, Dwarkia uh, is uh, also known as the city of Krishna, and you're right. It was considered a myth until they discovered it, and this is 
this is going to continue with these uh, because of this uh, asteroid hit or whatever uh, catastrophic event happened. Uh, the ocean oceans rose several hundred or more feet and covered cities that were on the outlying peninsulas uh, and portions of, of the world. So we're going to be seeing more of this. And this is why. And I also believe that Graham Hancock dove at Dwarka. Uh, I think he did in the 90s, yeah. Yeah, and he's actually been underwater to see it, so fascinating. One thing that might help this going forward is um, technology. So you have drone technology, like in the air. The drones yeah. are getting cheaper and better. But you also have it underwater. There's there's drone submarines you can you can buy now yeah. for a couple thousand bucks that can go one or 200 feet. So that's a great imagine point. In, yeah, that's in 10 years, yeah. in 10 years, if you can buy a drone for 500 bucks that goes 2,000 feet under underwater, I think yeah. it's only a matter of time before these are mapped out. Great great point. Yeah, definitely. That's fantastic. Okay, Adam, as always, great selection. And uh, we'll post these on the Facebook page, which will be on the uh, earthancients.com website. Uh, fantastic. We will talk to you again next week. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. All right. Sounds good. Talk to you soon. Last year, we were fortunate to have uh, Dr. Chandra Wick-Ramsey uh, on our program uh, to learn about the a fascinating field known as panspermia. And we learned that uh, Dr. Wick-Ramsey had a, a belief that Earth was perhaps seeded uh, by space-borne bacteria, either attached to asteroids or foreign bodies, and that in the end... We could consider this perhaps intelligent design of some kind. Now, he didn't get into the fact that this is uh, an alien race. Uh, he chose not to go there, but it does seem like the, the thinking is on that uh, level. My guest today is Dr. Milton Wainwright, and he uh, has worked directly with Dr. Uh, Wick Ramsey uh, on a number of projects, but his study... Uh, Dr. Milton's study is neopanspermia, and I have not heard of this until very, very recently. Uh, let me just tell you a little bit about uh, Dr. Milton Wainwright. He is a British microbiologist. He graduated from Nottingham in botany, obtained his Ph.D. in mycology and soil microbiology. He is currently at, uni at the University of Sheffield, and his focus is in astrobiology, and there's been, since 2013, 2015, he has been conducting 
high test in the stratosphere using balloons and another, I, I guess we'll learn more today exactly what that means. Dr. Uh, Wainwright, welcome to the program. It's really fascinating uh-huh. to have you. Can I just correct you on that a, a little bit? Um, we began our balloon studies actually around about 2002. Oh, okay. Um, right. Um, but the, you, you're correct in, in talking about the latest balloon studies starting around about uh, the date you suggested, yeah. Tell, tell us uh, a little bit about the research and study. What got you interested in this form of research? Because it is quite fascinating. It doesn't seem yeah. like it's uh, something that... Uh, well, interestingly, the, the way in which I, I, I got teamed up with uh, Chandra Wickramasinghe um, was very interesting. Um, a lot of his work uh, has been poo-pooed by the media and by scientists in general. And uh, there was a very uh, unpleasant article about his, his work in one of the... Uh, scientific journals, and I wrote a letter to the editor complaining about the way he was being treated. Mm-hmm. And uh, Chandra got in touch with me and said, um, "Would you? Would I like to join his team?" Wow. <laughs> now, <laughs> I'd been interested in panspermia for many years, and um, I said, "Of course, I'd be delighted." And when I when I went to visit him, I said, "Well, what's the problem? Where are all the microbiologists?" And he said, "Well, no one wants to risk their career." by doing this kind of thing, right? Of course, I, I just said, look, <laughs> that's fantastic. I'm desperate to get involved. So that's when I got involved, around about 2002. Okay. Now, um, the work we did was split into two kind of sections. The first was in collaboration with some Indian workers where we launched very large balloons, massive balloons that cost around about, um, well, I guess a million dollars per balloon. Oh, perhaps a little less than that, but very expensive. Large balloons full of helium, and these were um, launched to a height of about 41 kilometers. That's 25 miles. And we demonstrated with the Indian scientists that microbes, bacteria, uh, are up there at these heights. Now, for various reasons, we had to kind of separate from that work, which left me in a bit of a... a quandary, what could I do now? I had no access to balloons at that time. And fortunately, um, I got involved with some incredibly dynamic PhD students in the engineering department. Now, they started a business um, launching balloons, and um, I asked them if I could get involved or they would launch balloons for me. And amazingly, we got going. So around about 2013, I guess, we um, started launching um, weather balloons from Sheffield, from the Sheffield, from the UK, and with a sampler on the balloon, which would collect anything generally at around heights of about 30 kilometers. The, the basic idea is, is very simple. The balloon is launched. When I say simple, because the launching of the balloon is quite sophisticated, it takes a lot of knowledge. The, the balloon is then tracked. The height is monitored the speed, the location, GPS, and all that kind of thing. And then the required height, um, the sampler opens, and anything that's in the stratosphere which can fall onto the sampler, falls onto the sampler, and then the sampler closes and brings, by parachute, the sampler comes down to Earth. Oh, I see. Okay. Now, we check that the sampler is in one piece, obviously, and then we take it to a clean room, uh, extremely sterile room with no particles in the atmosphere, the kind of things that uh, the rooms that are, are used to make um, com- 
computer, disk, uh, chips, and so on. Mm -hmm. And um, we then take the samples from the sampler and transfer them again aseptically without contamination to an electron microscope. And we look at these particles under that very high-powered electron microscope, scanning electron microscope. Let me stop so you right there. Let, let me stop you right there. Yep. I, the yep. thing that makes what you do unique, taking balloons and uh, lifting them into the air, miles into the stratosphere, mm -hmm. uh, and then finding the, these bacterium and spores, your peers say that those are perhaps uh, uh, launched from Earth rather yeah. than coming from space. So okay. tell us right. a little this bit about how you define your discovery based on right. your findings. Okay, this is the crux of the issue. Obviously, the Earth is full of life, full of microbes. Right. Now, we've demonstrated that Earth-like microbes, Earth-like bacteria, rather, can be found at 41 kilometers. Okay. Uh, that was disputed by, by fellow scientists until we demonstrated it again and again, and, and they began to ac accept that. Okay. But on these second launches, what was interesting was that the organisms we found were not bacteria. They were much bigger. Instead of being around about one micron, they were about 10 to 40 microns, much bigger. And they were not in any way like Earth organisms. Okay. We can find no what we call analogs. We can find nothing. And I'm, uh, believe me, I know a lot about microbes. Over, I've been working as a biologist, microbiologist, for about 50 years now. I know a lot about the uh, morphology of microbes. So we've been looking at these organisms, and we can't find analogs. We can't find anything on Earth like them. So they're not bacteria, they're not protozoa, they're not fungi. Mm -hmm. And um, why do we think, why do we know they're not coming from Earth? Well, when we look at our samplers, we don't find anything like Earth organisms. We find no pollen, for example. We find no fungal spores. We find no bits of grass. Now, if this material was coming up from Earth, it would always be associated with that kind of material, right? Mm -hmm. Because there's no sieve, <laughs> there's no sieve across the Earth that takes out Earth-like material and then just lets our material go through, all right? Right. So, the fact that it only contains what we call biological entities, we don't know what they are, we can't identify them, the fact that it only contains these biological entities means they must be incoming to Earth rather than outgoing from Earth. Right. Now, when you actually look at these organisms, and you're calling them uh, alien microscopic... Well, we're calling them biological entities. Bio a, biological entities, yes. That's just a, a rough catch-all term, because we, right. we know they're biological, we know they're organisms, yeah. so we call them BEs, biological entities. Biolog and we, yeah. we know they're coming in from okay. space. I uh, reviewed an article, it was actually in UK Daily of all, uh, all online papers, uh, and you actually published a number of these uh, 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 organisms. Images, yeah. Yeah, one of them is a metal orb, and uh, yeah. can you talk a little bit about that one? That one's the most right. outstanding, simply because yeah. you did yeah. determine it was metal. What Did you get an idea what it was made from, what kind of metal well, it is? Let me tell you the whole story behind it. Yeah. Normally we find things that look biological. They've got what you might call proboscis, you know, a, a trunk-like structure. Yeah. They've got um, structures that look biological. Mm -hmm. Now, um, 
the two students who were doing the electron microscopy um, came to me one day, and basically they were showing me the photographs of what they've got. And one of these photos, so you get about 20 images. A lot of it is cosmic dust. It's not biological. Mm -hmm. I can tell you how we determine the difference uh, in a moment. So a lot of this material is cosmic dust, but say in every 20 or 30 samples, there's about five which are biological entities. Now, as I was looking through these, again, I was astonished, like you said, to see this spherical ball, this sphere. Now, when I looked at it, I thought, wow, I, I have no idea what that is. But what I did, to, I said to the students, would you go back and do what we call an EDAX, um, EDX? Mm -hmm. Now, this is, we apply um, an electron beam to the sample, and we can determine its, its atomic structure. So, for example, we can determine if it contains carbon, if it contains iron, all the elements um, we can determine. Mm -hmm. So we put a crosshair on the, the ball, and they press a button, and we get this wonderful array of, of elements. And to my great amazement, um, the main element was titanium with a little bit of zirconium. Oh, my God. Now, when I say titanium, because it doesn't necessarily mean it's titanium metal. It oh. may be titanium oxide, but it's titanium anyway. Okay. Titanium. And I thought, wow, okay. Now, for some amazing reason, I don't know why, I just said, wouldn't it be interesting to look behind the ball? Hmm. Right? Because uh, it was a perfect sphere. And I asked um, the students, Alex and Chris, by the way, um, if they could just move it across. Now, fortunately, they had some tremendous machinery on the electron microscope, which most biologists don't have. Because they're engineers, they have far more sophisticated microscopes than I would be used to using. And their microscope had this amazing ability um, to produce like a little wire that could be manipulated. And using this wire, remember, we're extremely high magnification. Mm -hmm. This very fine piece of wire could be used to drag the ball across. So when they dragged the ball across and brought me the images, again, I was absolutely stunned because there was a material oozing out of the sphere. Right. And when we analyzed the material, it was biological. It was carbon. It wasn't titanium. It was made of carbon and oxygen, a little bit of nitrogen. That is the signature for biology. And that's the signature we use with all these biological entities when we're trying to determine if they're cosmic dust. Cosmic dust comes across as aluminium, iron. Biological entities come across as carbon, oxygen, and a little bit of nitrogen. Okay, L let so me stop you right there just for a second. Uh, this yep. bi this uh, biological entity, this metal orb, would you say that it's artificial? Because when I look at it, it's perfect round. It's perfect. Exactly. Like a, well, yeah. Yeah, when, I, when you say I say it's artificial, I uh, suggest it may be, because... Of course, you can't be certain about these things. Yeah. And on what's more, it was, again, extremely interesting, is when we looked to the surface, the surface was made of knitted material, knitted strands, hmm. um, a bit like what you might imagine a, a knitted wool jumper would look like. It was made of material which was like knitted strands. And this, again, EDAX came up as biological. 
So what we have here is a, a sphere made of titanium, made of a little bit of um, other metals, but mainly titanium. And um, inside there's biological material, and on the outside there's biological material. And uh, so, obviously, there are a number of suggestions to this. Possibly this material was like um, a shell, a hermit crab, in which it was a, a, physical, a physical sphere that was somewhere else in the cosmos, and the organism had crawled into it for protection, yeah? Hmm. And, crawled, and developed on the outside of it. Or, of course, it could have been synthesized in that way, or, of course, it could, the, the organism could have secreted the titanium on the outside. Well, I'm thinking something else, and I'm, I'm just, my next question to you is, is like these orbs are a delivery system. Yeah, right. Now, I did suggest this in, in a newspaper report, not because I necessarily believe it, or I've necessarily got any direct information, but mm -hmm. just to cover all the bases, as you would say, um, because it occurred to me that this may be a synthetic means of delivering organisms, um, which would be in line with this theory of directed panspermia. Yes. The idea that some alien um, civilization was seeding the universe in some kind of delivery system. Mm -hmm. Now, I have no direct evidence for that. This is a, a suggestion. It's a very plausible suggestion, but of course, unless we find out Unless we found a name on it, you know, comes from planet Xenon, <laughs> yeah. or we could, we could directly go back and, and see these uh, aliens spewing these things out at rockets or whatever, um, it can only remain a suggestion. But it's a very interesting suggestion, mm -hmm. and um, it fits in with the, uh, the, the look of the, of the, of the structure. Yeah. Let me ask you, uh, you, you have targeted the uh, Earth's stratosphere is there something about that uh, location that is a good collecting uh, area for these bacteria before they're delivered to the actual yeah. surface of the planet? Uh, what, yeah. why, why did you pick that area? Well, again, I must, I must correct you on the bacteria. We're talking now about biological entities. Excuse me, I, I will correct that. Be, uh, yeah, but we, know there are, we know there are bacteria in there, but um, let me tell you something about size. Now, this is very important. When we do calculations, other people have done this. The general consensus is nothing larger than six microns. These are just measurements if, if, if the listeners don't know about microns. But just think in terms of six. Anything above six cannot travel from Earth to the heights of the stratosphere that we're sampling. Now, bacteria, as I said before, are around about one micron. So they could theoretically be carried up to the stratosphere. But, and viruses, of course, certainly, because viruses are extremely small, they could theoretically be carried up. But our entities, remember, are 10 to 40 microns. Now, it is impossible on current understanding to see how you could, uh, what mechanism you could have to carry them up to that height. Mm -hmm. So, the, the, the thinking is this. Anything that is coming in, into the Earth comes through the stratosphere, of course. If we go out to a point where we can't get Earth organisms, then anything we collect, by definition, is coming in from space. Now, another very interesting point about this is that the biological entities we collect are associated with impact events. On our sampler, we get impact events from cosmic dust. 
the cosmic boost is very hard, and as it comes in, it hits the sampler and impacts it, makes a, a crater, much like the, the kind of crater on Earth that's supposed to have killed the dinosaurs. So you've got this crater on the sampler, and around these craters, you've got the biological entities. Hmm. So again, that's some indirect evidence that this material is coming in. Okay. All right? Um, obviously, if we went 20 feet into the air, then the whole sampler would be full of grass and pollen. <laughs> you wouldn't see anything. Right. But, um, for what well, you see lots of earth material. But the higher you go, of course, the less chance you've got of contamination from earth. But I've got to stress again, yet again, and this is the basic point where we are absolutely certain we're right. Because if this was coming from earth, we would have seen a pollen grain on our sampler. We have not yet seen a single pollen grain and we've sampled now, I don't know, 15, 20 times, I guess. And uh, all over the world, by the way, not just in the UK, we've mm -hmm. sampled um, in Death, above Death Valley. We've sampled above the um, Bonneville Salt Flats. We've sampled above the Aurora Borealis. We've sampled across the, uh, across the prairies. Mm -hmm. um, sorry, the grasslands of uh, Wisconsin. Basically because we want to exclude the possibility of a local event, uh, and it certainly isn't, because we find these biological entities on all the, well, nearly all the samples we've, we've done. Okay. And um, when we sampled over Wisconsin, there was no grass. Now, you know, sorry, did I say Wisconsin? I mean Wyoming. When we sampled over Wyoming, there was no grass. Mm -hmm. And we would have expected to have found some grass particles were they coming from Earth? Okay. So we are absolutely convinced this material is incoming. It's incoming. And no one else. Okay. Incoming from space to Earth. And no one, I mean, I've given talks about it at meetings throughout the world. No one has suggested an alternative. I mean, every, you know, the, of course, on, on the Internet, on, uh, on Internet interactions, they all just say, oh, Occam's razor, it must be coming from Earth. Yeah. A lot of these people don't read the papers, they don't listen to us, yep. because if you say that, then you would have to have found Earth-like material on the sampler. Yeah, we, don't. we can get into the whole alien influence and the whole UFO alien thing. We're not going to go there, but yep. uh, you do mention that NASA is doing somewhat similar work. Are, are they finding these uh, uh, well, metal biological entities like you are? Yeah. Well, anything, anyone who gets involved with NASA um, finds themselves with an enigma and wrapped in a box and wrapped in another oh, box. Oh, yes. <laughs> we know all you, about him. You know all about that, I yeah, guess. Yeah, we have all um, kinds of people. Well, what are, what are NASA doing? NASA, uh, they did some some work like this way back in the uh, 19, well, 1960s, I guess. And um, I don't know what they're doing. I don't know if they're sampling... Uh, they should be trying to repeat our work because it's extremely right. low cost, extremely simple. They could do it with their technology they, and their, and their uh, budget. They could do that in, in six months. They could have repeated our work. So I don't know. Maybe they've repeated it. Maybe they found more. Maybe they always knew about it. I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, okay. we, I sent all my material to various NASA scientists and not got any reply. I mean, wow. we know they are... Um, testing the survival of bacteria in space 
in the um, at the space station and so on. But as yet, I don't know uh, that they've repeated. I find our that amazing that they haven't responded to you. Well, it's, it's not only amazing; it's it's absolutely uh, incredible because, as I said uh, before on, on a number of interviews, if this material is coming in, and we we certainly is, then it potentially poses a risk. Yeah. And they've been very negligent um, in not testing that risk, or maybe they're not. Maybe they have tested that risk. But they're certainly not talking about it. So well, we're saying here that yeah. material is coming in from space every day of the year. As yeah. you walk out of that building when, when the interview is finished or your listeners walk out of the house, there's material falling on their heads every single day of the year, every single second. Mm-hmm. Now, if this material has come from space, what is it? What's it contain? Does it contain organisms that could be dangerous? Well, nothing need to, to find out and tell us about this, don't they? Yeah. Um, so... I don't know. I assume, and I can't, I just cannot understand any reason why they wouldn't uh, yeah. repeat it, unless they just completely reject it out of hand, which is possible, of course. Um, uh, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, have you been able to determine if any of these uh, uh, biological entities have any form of uh, genetic material? Uh, now, we like- know that the material we know the materials contain the, the the biological entities contain DNA. Oh, that's what I wanted to find out. So they do right. contain DNA uh, of a, what right. type of species, or is it plant life? We don't know, or what? We don't know. Um, one of the problems is now this is uh, this gets um, quite complicated. But one of the problems is we don't have much material to work with. Mm-hmm. Now, um, once we've kind of looked at the material under the microscope, it's more or less finished with, so we can't do a lot of work with it. Um, I mean, obviously, NASA, with all their facilities and all their uh, great scientists, could continue our work. I mean, people always say to me, well, why haven't you done this? Why, have you, why don't you do this? And I say, look, we're a small laboratory, a few people. Yeah. Um, you know, we want people to join in all around the world with, with better facilities and, and, and better knowledge of, of looking for DNA and so on. So if everyone, or not everyone, but if a large number of people jumped on and started looking for this, within a year or so, we'd have far more information. Okay. So um, I do get a bit annoyed when people say, why haven't you done this? Why haven't you done that? Yeah. Well, the fact is, you know, it's like saying to um, Watson and Crick, why didn't, you <laughs> develop, why didn't you develop a system for catching criminals with DNA? Yeah, <laughs> Well, exactly. They were... They were at the beginning, you know, people have to develop the idea, you know. Right. L- let me ask you, uh, uh, on a personal note, what your belief mm-hmm. is uh, on intelligent design uh, uh, or seeding uh, planets. Uh, I, I, when I first talked to Chandra, uh, and I've talked to him a couple of times, he, you know, he believes that because of the uh, Judeo-Christian uh, ethics of the American scientists that a lot of this idea of intelligent design is just too much for them, and they just discount it. Uh, right. He's very, very uh, on record about this feeling this way, and yeah. I'm just curious about how you feel about the whole idea of an intelligent well, design yeah. uh, in this in this yeah, work. I, I think you've got to be careful with the expression, the term intelligent design. Now, intelligent design can, of course, be used to mean a god created life or it can be used to mean that uh, another civilization sent material, right? Um, which we call 
directed panspermia. Now, it's very interesting, the concept of directed panspermia, because it was first suggested or suggested vocally by, what, um, by Francis Crick of DNA fame. Now, he said that maybe a, um, a rocket came and delivered life to Earth, and once it was released, it took off and took over the planet. Now, if I had said that, I would have been laughed out of the lecture theatre. But, of course, Nobel Prize winners <laughs> uh, have a certain uh, dispensation, don't they? Um, so, Crick suggested this in a book with Leslie, a guy called Orgel, and uh, it was taken semi-seriously. But, of course, again, unless we find the rocket or some evidence, how do we know that it's been delivered? Um, so, this idea of directed, it's directed to us, and it can be directed throughout the cosmos, is a wonderful working idea, but it's very difficult to prove unless you find the delivery system. Now, maybe we have found the delivery system, uh, well, one type of delivery system, because, of course, if you're sending rockets around, it's not a very efficient way to deliver life to the cosmos. It'd be far better if you spewed out extremely small spheres, yeah? Um, that could, you know, contaminate the whole cosmos with life. So maybe we found this delivery system. I, I don't know. Yeah, it's a, but, it's a yeah. Go ahead. But but there, I mean, you know, essentially, I I don't discount anything. I mean, it is very plausible the idea that other civilizations. I mean, you know, we're either the usual story. We're a small rocky planet in yeah. corner of a, an indistinct, indistinguished um, universe. There's billions billions of rocky planets out there. Statistically, or in terms of probability, there must be life elsewhere. Some of it will be more intelligent, some will be less intelligent and all this. You've heard all the, the, the usual arguments. Yeah. Now, um, if there's some very intelligent life out there and they wanted to see the universe, then they could do it um, in various ways. But until we find the kind of mechanism, it's very difficult to prove. Or Until they come down in a, a UFO or something and tell us this is what they've been doing, it's very difficult to prove. Yeah. Uh, now, when you, uh, I was reading your overview on your website, neopamspermia is the theory that microbes are still arriving up to yeah. this moment. Can, can you yeah. break that up a little bit better? Yeah, for sure. Us? Yeah, um, there are kind of three or four different types of panspermia. The word panspermia originally meant the origin of life on Earth, right? So right. You, you imagine that, that the, the, the planet is cooling. At some point, it will become just right for life to grow, to develop. Mm -hmm. And the idea that it's been bombarded with life for billions of years, and just at that second, the temperature and all the conditions become right, and those organisms develop into life on Earth. And they evolve, and off we go. Now, it's very interesting, because organisms, small organisms like this, replicate every 20 minutes or so, a single organism from space could cover the whole of the Earth's surface within a few months. You know, the, the, the law of doubling means that you double and double and double, and it will take literally no time for this single organism to cover the Earth. And uh, so you don't need for life to have developed here on Earth. And again, in terms of probability, why would life have originated here when there are so many million, billions of, rocket, of uh, rocky planets Mm -hmm. where it could have it's kind of very um geocentric to think that life would always develop would would have developed here um right. you know it's a it's a bit like the old uh, 
idea that we're the center of the universe. Uh, now, of course, <laughs> this is only probability. It may well be that this is the only life in the universe. You can't discount that possibility. Uh, but in terms of probability, there's, there's life everywhere. Right. And um, so that is the idea of panspermia. So this is a one-off event. Life started and it evolved and here we are. Now, neo is a panspermia uh, expression I coined, takes into the account that this material is still coming in at this very second. Because when you think about it, if this material came in originally, nothing has happened over these billions of years. There's not been a, a guard, a, a greenhouse or something put over the earth. Mm-hmm. If that material came in in the first place, it continues to come in. And it's okay. continued to come in over the eons. It's, it's always coming in and it's coming in as we speak. And we've gone to the stratosphere and caught some of it as it comes in. Okay. Now, as a scientist, when you see this metallic ball uh, and you analyze it, you have powerful electron microscopes. Yeah. What, what comes to mind? I mean, uh, I mean well, is, uh, yeah, tell, tell us. Course, I'm uh, interested. Well, I mean, you, the whole thing, you can't imagine my excitement. Um, remember, I've come to the end of my career. I've been a, a biologist now for, as I say, 50 years. I've looked at all kinds of organisms on Earth. I've, I've got a very varied career. And um, towards the end of my career, these images were brought into me to analyze, and I was expecting nothing much. I was—I thought these balloon trips might just be of, uh, you know, kind of secondary interest. Maybe we'd find something. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But when I saw what we saw on the screen, you, I mean, you, you can't imagine the excitement. It, it needs to be turned into a movie <laughs> because you yeah. can imagine me sitting there and remember. Uh, Chris and Alex, the two students, are metallurgists. They know nothing about biology, which is great because it's an inbuilt control. They couldn't have photoshopped these images, right? They couldn't have have imagined because they know nothing, I mean, literally nothing about biology other Mm -hmm. than the layman. So they took these images because they saw things and they presented them to me to evaluate. And when I saw them, I I just, you know, I just, the excitement was unbelievable. Look at these things. And of course, when I saw the image of the ball, the, the sphere, the metal sphere which had been moved over, and I saw biology oozing from it, again, you know, it, it's just mind-boggling. You can't, you can't comprehend the excitement of it all, you know what I mean? Yeah. As you can imagine. Yeah. Um, because here, you are, here you've got something completely new. No one has ever seen images like this before. No one's ever reported it. Because, of course, you have to have the technology. So you can't go back and say, well, Darwin saw these things because the technology wasn't available. Yeah. Um, so that's now, of course, the downside of that is that no one, no one accepts it and no one, more, more kind of upsetting is no one wants to repeat it. Now, science is based on replication. You know, you can say anything you want, but if people don't try and repeat it, how the heck... Can we, you know, be, yeah. we, we've done it. We can keep doing it till, you know, till we, we're all dead. But we could do a thousand of these things. Mm-hmm. But unless someone else enters and independently does it, then the scientific community won't believe it. We've had a tremendous amount of problems getting this work published. Um, yeah. I, as I said, I go around the world um, at meetings, and usually I get a lot of, kind of 
puffing and puffing at the beginning, smiling. At the end of the lecture, I say, right, tell me where I'm going wrong. You, you've got some great minds out there. You tell me what's wrong with that talk. You tell me <laughs> where I'm going wrong. I don't mind if you reduce me to tears, right? Yeah. Call me stupid. Call me an idiot. Yeah. Um, but you tell me what's, what the alternative is, and no one, and I mean no one, I've been to United Nations space agency meetings. No one can tell me. They can poo-poo it. They can walk out. But no one can tell me where we're going wrong. Do you think it's just too hot to handle the whole idea that uh, alien, an alien civilization could be using Earth as a Petri dish of their own lab uh, yeah. in some evolutionary manner? It's just too, yeah. too much to conceive yeah. of. Well, the whole thing is, the whole thing is, I mean, without being immodest, this is an absolute change of biology. Yeah. It's a quantum leap, because if this material is coming in with viruses, for example, it brings in new information, and that's the important thing for evolution. Now, evolution could have progressed on Earth, mm -hmm. but it runs out of information. But if you're bringing information all the time from space, new DNA, and that DNA is integrating with organisms that are here, you're, you're continually bringing in new information. So it, it, gives you a, it gives you cosmic evolution. Instead of thinking of evolution as a, a closed system on this little planet, the whole thing becomes open. The whole cosmos is open to life. The whole cosmos is a living organism which is evolving. And, um, you know, it, it's, a, it's an absolute paradigm shift. Yeah. Now, paradigm shifts are very difficult to achieve. People don't like paradigm shifts. You know, people resist change, scientists resist change. I'll give you an example of this. Um, on a number of occasions, we, we contacted laboratories with big machines which could help us with our work. And we generally contacted youngish people who were very excited. Yes, we can do this. Um, and then almost, well, inevitably, on every occasion, kind of one week before we were going to do the work, they emailed me and said, sorry, we can't do it. Because invariably, the head of the institute or the department didn't want to get involved. They didn't mm. want their name associated with this crap, you know, this, this yeah. alien stuff. Yeah. And uh, we had to uh, cancel the experiments. So that's what you're up against, right? You're up against yeah. really determined. And they're not malicious. They just... They just don't want to change their opinions. And this is, you know, this has been the same. Yeah. Back to Galileo. This is nothing new. In but fact, I, heard, I, I heard the same thing from Wick Ranzing. Uh, yeah. He believed uh, the, Ameri the Western culture just couldn't ha handle it because of the impact it has on religion. And this, is why, yeah. this is why he was uh, having more luck with the Indian science, scientific group who happens to have more of a very old background in Hinduism yeah. and yeah and yeah. uh, the yugas and things like that. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, obviously, if it were demonstrated, um, Christianity and religions in general would accommodate it like they accommodated Darwinian evolution, um, you yeah. know, natural selection. They'd say, well, God sent the material. I mean, it's not difficult to incorporate it into your belief system, is it? Um, this is all done by God. So um, I don't know... I mean, that would be a, an important factor, I guess, in mm -hmm. being accepted. But the main reason, I think, is just scientists, and, you know, you've got to accept it, scientists are slow to change their ideas. Yeah. I mean, 
it's a good idea not to be too quick because you don't want to be changing, you know, having mad ideas change every every six months. You've got to be conservative and look at it. But my only complaint is that first, the the publication system, the peer review system, stops our work from being published. Uh-huh. They just will not entertain it. Not not they won't criticize it. They won't entertain it. Hmm. So that's one issue. And then the second is that no one, as far as we know, is repeating it. Now, I've done a lot of work on the history and philosophy of science, and there's many examples, including Darwin where people came up with ideas before the recognized discoverer. So, for example, a guy called Patrick Matthew came up with natural selection 20 years before Darwin. So it seems that in many discoveries, there's a pre-discovery, and then someone else discovers it and gets the credit. Mm -hmm. And I think this is what will happen here. I think NASA, in a few years' time, um, you know, Professor John Smith of NASA finds these organisms, and (laughs) it'll be a great discovery, you know? Yeah, because I, it'll, I, have the, it'll, have the, it'll have the name of NASA on it. Well, this is the question I had from you. If they found, uh, if somebody else or perhaps even your lab found one of these spheres with uh, animal DNA or human DNA or something that really is quite alarming, wouldn't yeah. that be enough to put you over the edge and, and begin yeah, having well, more? Yeah, absolutely. But um, that, that, that could, could happen, yeah. I mean, it's, again, it's very sad. Uh, that we couldn't do that kind of work on the on the sphere we had, but if if there's enough people doing it, then they'll they'll find one again. I mean, um, mm-hmm. well, in terms of probability, they will. Can I just mention another thing that's very exciting, and that is the fact that um, this could only occur on a planet like Earth. Um, obviously, I'm I'm very aware. I'm I'm kind of very aware that someone is going to shoot me down in flames any minute. So um, when I get emails from people saying this is an explanation, I kind of catch my breath a little. And I got one from a student in America, an email saying, if this material is coming in, how come the, the moon is not covered in it? And for a second I thought, uh-oh, why, why? And then it occurred <laughs> to me, of course, that the moon has no atmosphere. Yeah. Now, Earth has an atmosphere, so it's slowing this material down. Some mm-hmm. of it burns up, but it is slowing it down. So you could only do these experiments on a planet like Earth with an atmosphere. You couldn't do it on the moon. Because anything coming hitting the moon is going to be absolutely smashed, yeah? Right. Um, marmalized, if you want to use that word. Smashed to smithereens or whatever they say. And um, so it can only occur on a planet like Earth. So we're very fortunate, humans, in living on this planet, that we can demonstrate that life is coming in from space. Mm-hmm. Isn't that nice? That is. I, I want to I drill down a little bit on this whole uh, concept. Um, you can look at. I think you can look at it two ways, but you tell me what you feel. It, is it random seeding, or like when I say random, it's like there's some machine out there or some system that's delivering biological entities to a number of planets that have can sustain life, like Earth, or is it possible that it's a form of evolutionary seeding where they deliver more and more sophisticated uh, uh, biological entities, some with DNA, some with all kinds of uh, uh, microbes that are uh, directly influencing our evolution as yeah. a human being, intelligence, uh, physiology, well, so forth and so on. What do you say about that? Because I'm just curious. It's, you it's you fall for the trap of using the word or, which oh. most people fall for. Um, <laughs> things can happen simultaneously. So it could be sent naturally. 
And I think yeah. the majority of it, probably, is sent just because the cosmos is so full of life that when you get impact events and so on and so forth, it's going to be spread. So it's a natural phenomenon. But that doesn't exclude the possibility that somebody's taking that, some civilizations adding to that by sending whatever they want to send. And you could, I mean, you can imagine all kinds of things, can't you? You can imagine that um, this is an experiment and they're seeding the earth to see how things grow and one day they're going to come and um, harvest the cannabis. <laughs> I mean, you know, you you don't know. You can make up all kinds of scientific um, yeah. science fiction scenarios for this. But um, I would think it occurs naturally in any case. It occurs because the cosmos is full of life and the cosmos is spreading life. Okay. And comets may be a major factor involved in that. Um, but on top of that, it could certainly be that other civilizations are, are playing around, you know? Yeah. You know, I uh, on your website you have a, a series of fantastic uh, uh, images of these biological entities uh, mm -hmm. th that are, are taken. Um, they all have different shapes and different unique mm -hmm. uh, uh, properties. Uh, have you been able to uh, uh, identify a, a certain type? Because uh, there, are these some of these are all they're different shapes. Yeah, obviously, yeah. Other than the rounds, uh, I mean, yeah. is there? Have you classified anything yet? No, no, because they're, they're unclassifiable in, in the sense that, um, I mean, I, I do add names to them. I add, I add names to them just so we can talk about them, right? Right. Um, so I might talk about the ghost particle. I don't think it's a ghost. To me, it just looks like a ghost. So yeah. I use that expression so I can say, this is the ghost particle, right? Rather mm -hmm. than particle number X5, you know, which is pretty boring. So I use, but we don't know what they are. Now, you've got to remember that these sampling trips are essentially just fishing trips, right? Yeah. We're sending the balloon up and we're catching whatever we, we catch. So there's so many different types, presumably, that most of the time you just get different ones. Now, if we had a thousand million launches, then obviously we'd get more and more of these and we could see how many are common and how many are rare and so on, you know. Uh, for the moment, we've only got this limited number of launches, so we're getting a vast array of different organisms. Now, I always, I'm, I'm nearly 70 now, um, so let's say I got, with the grace of whatever, I've got 20 years left. Maybe just before I die, someone will produce a compendium of all the organisms they found, and I will look back and see our dozen organisms or whatever, and then see thousands of different organisms in this wonderful scrapbook of organisms yeah that'd be fantastic wouldn't it yeah. um so you got to remember this is the beginning people don't seem to understand the concept of science of paradigm shifts beginning they want all the answers in one and they criticize you for not finding the answers in one you know sometimes at meetings people said oh well why haven't you done this you could have done that and so on and so forth but um hopefully people are going to jump on the on the bandwagon, as it were, and repeat this and, and keep doing it. Yeah. Um, but for the moment, you know, it's, early, it's relatively early days. Um, generally, paradigm shifts take about 30 years to be accepted. Yeah. Um, so maybe I'll... I'll, I'll You'll be, be around. Else. I'll be well... somewhere else, possibly. possibly <laughs> so. Or maybe yeah. I'll, be part, I'll be part of the cosmos by then anyway. But um, <laughs> Yeah. Of course, I would love, before I... 
uh, move on to find the answer. Even if the answer was negative, if somebody could could tell me why we're going wrong, I would mm-hmm. I would accept that. I'm a scientist. It's, this is not a religion. If I mean, I have obviously and and the my collaborators have cracked our brains trying to find an alternative. And, and as I say, yeah. no one has shut us down in flames yet. You know, usually if there's an obvious, if I'm stupid and there's an obvious solution, someone will stand up and say, you know, there's the, you know, you're stupid, you missed that. But yeah. we don't get that. So that's yeah. reassuring, you know. Let me ask you, do you think that these are, these uh, uh, biological entities are actually influencing uh, us in some way? I mean, you, you haven't said that once, but I'm just curious. Uh, yeah. Do you, well, do you think course. they are? Everyone asks me, are they going to kill us? Are they going to, is this the end of the world, like some science fiction, you know, uh, kill us from outer space and all this. Now, you've got to remember that if we are right, this material has been coming in forever, literally ever. So this material is as much about Earth's biology as you are. I am. Right, right. Of course, there could be some pathogens in there. Um, I, I usually give the analogy of, well, if you go to the, plains of Africa, most of the animals are benign, you know, you can, but there's a, a lion there, <laughs> and if you isolate the lion, you know, you're in big trouble. So there may be single organisms within these biological entities that could do us harm, but as yet, um, they are part of the biology that we are part of. They are us. Mm-hmm. They are part of us. They, if the theory is right, they are what made us. They're contributing to us, and they continue to right. contribute. Right. So all that evolution which most biologists these days just look at it from an Earth-centric viewpoint. Oh, you know, it was, this became, this became. In the future, you will say, ah, but that information that made, I mean, you could even imagine the information that, say, converted a primitive ape organism to man Mm -hmm. came from outer space. Wouldn't that be exciting, you know? Exactly. um, That's a very interesting possibility. Um, Mm. So, you know, let's, let's have a look at that. Let's run with that. But, of course, most scientists will not even entertain the idea of cosmic influences. It's, it's, it's only a few years, you know, since we've been talking about asteroids hitting the planet. Yeah, yeah, I mean, Darwin, exactly. there were a few what they call catastrophists who, who, who knew about this way back. Right. But most, most biologists are very Earth-centric, right. you know. Uh, as a microbiologist, do you have you guys done any kind of study where you're trying to grow something using this uh, material? This, no, we've uh, grown bacteria um, with, from with the these earth, with, Oh, you have. We've okay. grown ordinary bacteria from the strut, and a number of other people have. But these biological entities, uh, no, we haven't grown them. Again, because we're restricted by, you know, we spent our time, mm-hmm. and remember, we've no money. <laughs> That's right. another factor. Um, you know, people say, well, maybe you could crowdfund or something. Um, we have very little money to do this. We've done it on a shoestring because we could never get grants. We cannot, uh, no granting authority will do it. Wow. We'll, we'll, we'll give us money. So, you know, if there's any millionaires out there, whatever, uh, then they could, you know, join our kind of team and we could spend a lot more money, get more people involved. For the moment, we're very restricted in what we can do. Um, I'd be... I'd be a little cautious of growing them, of course, because, you know, if you've got a dead lion in your house, <laughs> you can relax. But if you've got a living lion in your house, you've got problems, yeah? yeah. So 
I hear to you. grow them, we'd have to be extremely careful. We'd have to worry about, obviously, we'd have to worry about the earth. We'd yeah. have to, you know, we couldn't just go around growing them um, yeah. because we don't know, and we'd have to be extremely cautious in terms okay. of quarantine. We, uh, I mean, for our own sake, as yeah. I said, I, I think most of them are benign, but who knows? You've got to be very careful. Yeah, so okay. I think growing takes you to a different level of security where our funding just can't cope with that, you know. That's, be, a whole, that's a whole different level to what yeah, we do. Yeah, we'd be, we'd be um, you know, incredibly stupid to mm. try and just grow them in a jam jar, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I would think it would be more uh, uh, secure than that, but I Well, slightly more. You know. Now, obviously, yeah. we would use clean rooms and so on and so forth. Um, we would not yeah. be uh, so ridiculous to that, but, um, yeah. you know, it... It's something to really worry about because, uh, as I said, most of it is benign, but who knows? And we don't want to set off a chain of, uh, yeah. of accidents that lead to the end of life on Earth. This has <laughs> I been, don't want to be famous for killing off the planet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this, this has been a, a wonderful uh, uh, eye-opener. And I'm mm-hmm. curious, what do you think people sh- uh, should consider about your discoveries? How, how should people? How would you like people to, to uh, uh, look at your work? Uh, well, first of all, it's very important to remember this is an extension of Hoyle and Wickramasinghe. I've been a, a collaborator with Chandra. Of course, Fred Hoyle has died many years ago, but Chandra is the, the brains behind this. He's the man who's, who's took all the ridicule, right. and believe me, he's had racist insults because he's from Sri Lanka. He's had racist, he's had people, he's been denied a fellowship of the Royal Society, which he, he should have had many years ago. He's taken the brunt of this. So oh. it's an extension of his theories. We've done the practical work. We've actually found the evidence. And I think this is a paradigm shift. I think this is, you know, I mean, obviously, it all sounds very uh, arrogant. But I think that this, if it's confirmed, certainly, will be the greatest discovery in biology yeah. since Darwin. It will yeah. completely change our view of life in, on Earth and in the cosmos. It'll... It'll show us that we are not this superior race. We, we think we are. We, there are organisms out there, and um, these have impacted on our evolution. So hmm. it's mind-boggling, really. Yeah, fascinating. Hey, uh, uh, what do you expect? What can you? What do you? You kind of gave us a little bit of projection. Like if things were to work out, you'd get more funding. You'd have other uh, mm-hmm. labs doing uh, uh, similar work, so you could all collaborate. But what yeah. do you? What do you? What would you like to see in the next, say, five years, right. uh, in this in this area? Right. So people have got to repeat the work, and they've got to do it responsibly. You know, they've got to take our work and repeat it. They can't just send balloons up with a bit of sticky tape, you know, <laughs> yeah. and then say uh, whatever. They've got to do it responsibly. They've got to um, do it on a large scale and and take the organisms and look at them using new techniques. Uh, people with more expertise than we have in, in, in certain areas have to get involved. You, you could have a whole funding agreement. NASA could develop a whole funding structure to it. Right. Yeah? And then it would really take off. You'd have thousands of people. And, of course, science obviously gets better than the number of people who would do it. And, of course, maybe when you did that, you'd find another an alternative explanation and I could just retire and uh, forget about it. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> More people get on it. Who knows? You'll, maybe yeah. it's something that's happening, yeah. naturally occurring in our planets. But, uh, yeah, but I suspect, and I've said this before, that if this is anything like other paradigm shifts, 
it'll go on for about 20 years, 30 years, and then some bright spark will um, so-called rediscover it, and then someone will look back in history and say, about, you know, these guys did it in the 2000s. Exactly. And, you know, um, and then exactly the same with Darwin. As I said, Patrick Matthew should have got all the credit for the discovery of natural selection or the idea of natural selection. And 20 years later, Darwin becomes uh, the man. But he isn't the man in in real terms. There's a guy called Patrick Matthew before him. So I suspect this is what will happen. So um, maybe in history, our group may get the credit, but I suspect that it'll take Hopefully, however, someone's listening to this or or reading our papers or the website and so on, and they'll get their finger out and actually do something. As I said before, this literally is not rocket science. It's literally relatively, well, it's very cheap to do in terms of NASA. NASA could do this with their toilet roll budget, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, a a million dollars per balloon is still a lot of money, but no, no, no. With these ones, we're talking about the whole thing. The whole replication could be done for ten thousand dollars. Is this the? You mean the work that Chris Rose and Alex uh, Baker? That's right. That's right. The whole thing. No, the whole thing that we have done could be done with with help from Chris and Alex because they have the technical wizardry with help from them, or even without it, because there are other people with technical wizardry, obviously, at NASA, they're, they're good people, um, it could be done ten, twenty thousand dollars $20,000, literally. Wow. Okay. So, so we're not talking about big money here. Right. Every launch costs about $3,000. Um, and as I said, we've, we've launched them all over the world, so you could be launching them from uh, Australia, and, um, you know, and so on. It would be exciting. Right. Fantastic. Fascinating. Uh, My guest has been Dr. Milton Wainwright, and his work is uh, fabulous. Uh, we got to hear more from you. Uh, What is the website so people can go and check this out? Um, Well, it's Uh, miltonwainwright.com. I don't know the HTTP, whatever, just milton.com. Or they can put Milton Wainwright Sheffield, and they'll get all the news and, and that kind of material, you know. Right, and, and you're then, posting fairly regularly there, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, not so much now because I'm more or less retired. Well, I'm retired from the university. I'm obviously doing work, right. but um, things are slowing down a bit, you know, as they inevitably yeah. do when you get to 70. I'd like to have kept on going, but uh, these things happen. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, um, and if they look on the Internet, you'll, they'll get the trolls, of course. I mean, you get some amazing stuff. You know, this guy's just doing it for the money. They're, they're, they're you know, <laughs> photoshopping the images, and they're just yeah. doing it to get rich and all this kind of crap. Yeah. Uh, oh, the yeah. guy's stupid. The guy's a, uh, you, you, you know, the usual stuff. Sure. Um, sure. Um, so, uh, and people come up to me and say, "Well, oh, I read, I read the, uh, I read the comments, and they've proven you're wrong." And I'll say, "What do you mean they've proven I'm wrong?" Well, some guy said it couldn't happen. And they believe them, of course. Yeah, right. So the Internet is doing this, isn't it? It's, you know, well, the Internet's doing it, but I, I think we deal with something else. I brought this up before. The whole idea of alien intelligence throws yeah. people for a loop. Shit, it, it upsets people. If they're fundamentalist Christians, it throws yeah. them a, a wrench into their whole right. reality. It's yeah. too much for people, so yeah. they're going to slam I, you as much I, as they can. Yeah, I can't. I really can't understand that. I mean, obviously, I'm involved in it. But yeah. I don't understand why there's such a negative. I mean, my wife 
very prosaic, says, um, well, of course, life's coming from space. <laughs> and she's not too excited about me demonstrating it. <laughs> so, she's very matter-of-factly, yeah. I guess. Yeah, she, yeah. She, to her, it seems quite obvious. Why wouldn't it? And right. so I don't understand why people... One of the problems we get, by the way, it's out of interest, is that I send press releases out, and I, I spend a lot of time doing wonderful scientific press releases, you know. <laughs> and then the newspapers, because they don't know anything, they actually put the press release in, more or less, but then they put a title on it, you know, a little green men found over oh, London, you know. Yeah. And, of course, that immediately puts the backup of the regular scientist, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, you, it, Wainwright says... Being scientific, yeah. You know, Wainwright says life was sent by aliens. Well, I never said that. <laughs> yeah. And if, if you read everything I say, I obviously say it very scientifically and very, as, as you've heard from this discussion, very yeah. cautiously. I, I'm not yeah. saying... I have evidence that the little green men sent these things. But so, you know, I mean, there's, there's one famous image that looks like a penis. I don't know if you've seen it, but it looks no. like a penis. So one of the newspapers there, a bit like the National Enquirer, put on it, <laughs> put the picture on the front page, said, uh, oh little God. green man's penis found over Sheffield, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Alien. Well, that's right because you were you were lifting balloons up in in, uh, in England, weren't you? You were doing yeah. Your own. Well, that's how we started. Yeah, we, we yeah. As, as I said, we've done mostly in England, of course. Uh -huh. Then we've done them um, over uh, Iceland, the Aurora Borealis. Yeah. We've done them yeah. twice in the states now. Yeah. So, we, with our limited budget, we've we've done very well. But of course, other people yeah. could do them now as well. You know? Yeah, fantastic. Listen, uh, we're going to have to follow up with you sure. uh, and some uh, some of your other discoveries. Uh, continue success, and uh, we'll get the word well, out on, on our end. Yeah, well, thank you for that, and uh, best of luck, yeah? You know, when uh, Dr. Uh, Luke Ramsey was on the program, it left such an impression on me regarding the possibility of an alien influence and in seeding our, our, uh, our planet. And, you know, it's kind of like when we, I thought of it in similar terms of us working with microbes and doing uh, genetic engineering uh, using Petri dishes, <laughs> which is old news. No one uses Petri dishes anymore, but that's my term for lab work. Uh, and, and I was thinking, you know, why wouldn't a million, hundred million year old civilization be into terraforming a planet and populating it and and testing out different personality types and different types of beings it just it just hit me with such a uh, an, an impactful uh, level of uh, consciousness that I was like this is this a possibility is it really a possibility and uh, dr. Wainwright brings us uh, full circle from Wick Ramsey and actually, under uh, a microscope, can, you know, we can see, you can see these artificial, these artificial circular, these sphere, these circular uh, pods. They're really, really unusual. Uh, and by the way, I will be posting those on the Facebook page, which will go to the Earth Ancients um, website, and you can get more, uh, more of a sense of what he was talking about and how odd these these uh, foreign bodies are that are just floating in our stratosphere. So I hope you enjoyed the show. I know I did. Uh, and it just still is fascinating to consider. So.
All right, that's it for this week's program. Uh, check out Facebook for all the news. And and uh, if you haven't signed up yet, make sure you sign up. Go to uh, Facebook, Earth Angels. We have a group page and also an international page. Um, the group page is more opportunity for you to talk with others, get a daily sense of what's going on in the world. So check it out. Okay, hey, that's it for this week, and we will talk to you next time.